Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm Eric Lures. And it's September 13th, 2018. On this week's show, what you need to do if you want to win a future BAFTA, which is the best wireless kit to own, how many hours a week should you work on your film, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and weekly words of wisdom. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this week's show, coming at you from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School. We're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy working on films. Now, it's just Eric and I and the specter of the nun in the booth today. You're right. You're right. Because uh, John, as you know, is up at TIFF, and he's going to bring you a full uh, download of his coverage next week on the show. And Charles Hain is fathering. And John may be conceiving. Oh, we don't know. Boy. We don't Ooh. know. You know, he's That's... he's not on email after eight o'clock. Listen, what happens at TIFF? Anyway, <laughs> comes uh... back to New York. <laughs> yeah. So little girl Hayne was born as we recorded the podcast last week. We must be good luck. Um, and we're we're wishing Charles and his new family all the best. I'd like to kick off the show by wishing a happy new year to our Jewish friends around the globe. And in the spirit of celebration, I will follow up on some recent headlines with awards news. We spoke last week about the Venice Film Festival, and it has since handed out its lions. I noticed that Berlin has bears, Venice has lions. I wonder if any festivals have tigers. Oh, my. There has to be a Wizard of Oz festival somewhere. It may not It may not be a film festival, but there has to be some kind of screening dedicated to it every year in Kansas. Oh, yeah. Where I grew up, actually, is the near near where I grew up is the hometown of L. Frank Baum, who wrote ah. The Wizard of Oz. And they have a whole festival every year. They paint the main road yellow. And, yeah, it's they probably have thing. a golden tiger. Yeah, you're right. Um, although it's a lion in, in uh, Wizard of oh. Oz. All right. Mm. Sorry, it's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, several of the films we mentioned last week and were excited about turned out to be the big winners. My man Alfonso Cuaron won the Golden Lion for Roma. That's the main prize. And it looks like Greek director Yorgos Lanthimos was somewhat clairvoyant when he called his new film The Favorite because the 18th century period dark comedy won the grand jury prize. And we mentioned last week that Australian writer-director Jennifer Kent's The Nightingale was the only title in the competition directed by a woman, and that woman didn't go home empty-handed. The revenge thriller won the special jury prize and also a Best Young Actor prize for Bakali Ganimbar. One prize of particular note is the grand jury prize for Best Virtual Reality Immersive Story, which went to Eliza McNitt's three-part VR series, Spheres. If that sounds familiar, it might be because the first part of that series premiered back at Sundance, and we subsequently reported that it got the first seven-figure deal for a VR project out of that festival. It's particularly interesting because of the premiere rollout, which happened across three different festivals for each part of the series. I was blown away by part one at Sundance and part three at Tribeca, and also because of the project's high-profile nature. You might remember that Darren Aronofsky is the EP, and Millie Bobby Brown, Jessica Chastain, and Patti Smith narrate the three parts. It's one of those projects that really makes me feel like VR is here to stay. And by the way, Eliza is only 27 and a total rising star herself, kind of an inspiration for anyone who listens to this podcast. And I interviewed her back at Sundance, which we will link to in the podcast post. And while we're on the topic of awards, the 70th annual Primetime Creative Arts Emmy Awards were held over two nights this past weekend in Los Angeles, where John Legend became only the 12th EGOT ever. Do you know what an EGOT is, Eric? Uh, I do. It's, I'm not going to look. It's a Emmy, an Oscar, a Grammy, and a Tony, right? Or right. No, am I missing Wrong something? order, but right awards. Oh, okay. EGOT. So it's it's a right. person who's collected Emmy, Grammy, uh, Oscar, and t- Tony Awards. And he's the first African-American to do so 
He's also only 39, so get off your asses, people. It was for Jesus Christ Superstar. Remember how excited I was <laughs> yes. for that? Yes. <laughs> apparently it was good. Did you enjoy it? I thought it was definitely Emmy-worthy. I, did, I actually <laughs> didn't even know it was eligible for Emmys. It was a live performance, but I guess that is its own special yeah, category. Yeah, it's its own. Exactly. Huh. It's its own category. Um, I'm also over the moon to report that Amy Peters, who we just had on the interview podcast a few weeks ago in an episode called What It Takes to Be a Top TV Editor, won the editing award along with her team for their work on Queer Eye. And several other folks who we've interviewed were handed awards, including the editors of Wild Wild Country, which won Outstanding Documentary or Nonfiction Series, Yancey Ford, director of Strong Island, which won Exceptional Merit in Documentary Filmmaking, and DP Christian Springer, who was awarded Outstanding Cinematography for a Single Camera Series for his work on Atlanta. Congratulations to you all, and we will link to all of those interviews in the podcast post. So keeping with the awards news, uh, is it too early to talk about the BAFTAs? They normally happen in February, but it feels like we're getting into a film awards season already. So it's guaranteed to be a long one, and some of the biggest institutions are already revving up with rule and eligibility changes. A huge change is coming from the aforementioned BAFTA Awards, who last week, according to Slate.com, announced a pretty major change geared toward improving diversity traits in film production. Quote, the British Academy of Film and Television Arts announced last week that beginning in 2019, works that do not demonstrate inclusivity in their production practices will no longer be eligible for the Outstanding British Film or Outstanding Debut by a British Writer, Director, or Producer Awards at the annual BAFTAs. Eligible projects must showcase this in two of the following ways, either on-screen characters and themes, senior roles and crew, industry training in career progression, and audience access and appeal to underrepresented audiences. BAFTA will also remove the requirement that newly admitted voters be recommended by two existing members. So this is a pretty drastic change and actually represents a film institution putting its money where its mouth is by making such a bold decision, and it may have a direct influence on how films are being made in the future, both behind and in front of the camera. So it's worth noting that this is only for two the two British-specific awards at BAFTA, not all of them, so it's still going to be pretty populated with a lot of American films. But in these two categories, that diversity uh, inclusion rule will be starting next year. So that's an interesting award addition, I, I assume. Uh, and, and speaking of award addition, let's talk about an award subtraction. Thankfully, the Academy has listened to this podcast. That I think that was in the press release. Um, announcing <laughs> that, that best, most best... Popular film, most popular film, the best film in the popular the category, friend, the film with all the followers on Facebook or whatever. Uh, most popular film is being canceled. It was announced that that was going to be a brand new category that came to fruition next year for the ceremony. It was announced on the show like two or three weeks ago. Yeah, and it got so much backlash. It that... did. So now they said we're going to rethink it or reevaluate it, and it will not be an award given out next year. That doesn't mean that it's being canceled outright. But it kind of does. I, I don't know. I mean, they're going to reevaluate best popular film because there were just no specifics, unlike BAFTA, about the requirements and, and the eligibility and what is really what are they looking for to determine what makes best popular film. Uh, so that will not be taking place next year. I guess you could say the decision to have that award was not so Popular. popular. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that's the thing. You think they would check with member, voting members of the Academy before they made a decision like this. But it sounded very spur of the moment, 3 a.m., <laughs> let's just put this to bed, you know, and, and make it official kind of decision. But now they'll be curious back. to see how it all plays out. And in the BAFTA thing, too, you know, British filmmakers take note. No excuses anymore. If you want to be eligible for a BAFTA, you're going to have to 
you know, make sure you're really thinking about who's on your crew. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah. And when you see those nominees next year, you'll know that they may meet at least two of those categories. So that's pretty cool. Absolutely. And finally, in the headlines, we want to say a sad goodbye to screenwriter Tom Rickman, who passed away last week at age 78. He earned an Academy Award nomination for his writing on Coal Miner's Daughter in 1981, which Sissy Spacex performance in won her a Best Actress Oscar. He wrote several screenplays and also received a couple Emmy nominations for TV movies, but there's a fact about his life that didn't make the obituaries in the trade publications and yet probably means the most to the indie film community. He was in the group of founding creative advisors for the Sundance Screenwriters Lab. My new boss, Michelle Satter, wrote a lovely remembrance of the writer. She said, over three decades, Tom continued to be an inspiration to hundreds of emerging writers, transformed by the time and care he put into each meeting, each interaction. Tom's generosity and humility was astounding. He spent hours preparing for the meeting so he could create an intimate space for exploring the tough questions, listening, and giving writers everything he had, going page by page when needed. Rest in peace, Tom Rickman, and thanks for all that you did for the film community. And this week in Tech and Gear News, as mentioned, Charles Hain is busy doing something pretty important. So Eric and I will be taking over. Uh, We have a heavy focus on reviews and field tests, several of which have gone up on the site or will be going up this week. First up is the Electrosonics L-Series wireless kit. Our tech writer, Daron James, has a particular area of interest in sound gear. He actually used to be editor-in-chief over at Sound and Picture, and he's already a fan of Electrosonics, but was particularly impressed by the L-Series ZS LRLT. From small details like the fact that the kit actually comes with a full kit, including a camera shoe mount and the right cables, to the solid build, to the advanced features like a test tone on the receiver that lets you match the audio levels of your equipment, and especially the range. In a crowded mall, the signal didn't start breaking up until over 500 feet, and outside in an open field, it was over 1,300. Another interesting feature to note about this kit is that it uses a digital hybrid wireless signal, which digitally encodes and decodes the audio, but still sends the signal over analog airwaves. As Daron says in his review, basically, Electrosonics is trying to deliver the best sound over the best signal. The kit price comes in about $2,700, and you can read the full review on the site. Next, uh, we spoke a few weeks ago about Blackmagic's new eGPU that was designed with Apple to help speed up workflow. And now Lily Kleinman has done a field test for us with one of the units on a short film where she DIT'd and assistant edited on set and was the editor in post. She said that with four USB ports, two Thunderbolt 3 ports, and an HDMI port, she was able to have four external hard drives connected through the eGPU for super fast simultaneous data transferring and cloning, and she didn't have to bring a MacBook charger to set with her. Quote, it was the cleanest setup I've ever experienced, eliminating the need for computer chargers, extra extension cords, and external USB hubs. She also mentioned how surprisingly quiet it was with all that was going on, which is also, of course, a big benefit in the field. Her test goes into detail about how the unit functioned in her post setup, which is not a huge surprise to learn that it seems to work best in helping speed up workflow with Resolve's color tools. After all, Blackmagic makes this eGPU and also makes Resolve. So I'll let you read all those details in Lily's post. Last but not least, our resident drone guy and one of my favorite guys of all time, Randall Asulto, did a deep review of DJI's latest drones, the Mavic 2 Pro and the Mavic 2 Zoom. These two little drones are almost identical in terms of construction, obstacle avoidance, top speed, flight time, and the fact that they both have cool new features like a hyperlapse shooting mode, but where they differ is in their cameras. The Mavic 2 Pro camera costs $1449 and features a 1-inch Hasselblad-designed sensor 
capable of shooting 20 megapixel JPEG or DNG stills and up to 10-bit UHD 4K video, and it has a user-adjustable aperture. Its fraternal twin, the Mavic 2 Zoom, is $200 less and features a much smaller sensor capable of capturing only 12 megapixel stills and 4K video at up to 30 frames per second in 8-bit color depth, and it has no user-adjustable aperture. So why would you get the Zoom? Well, it offers a two times optical zoom and has a focal length that's adjustable between 24 millimeters and 48 millimeters. So Randy concludes that if you're mainly shooting video and you already have like a Phantom 4 Pro, maybe you get the Mavic 2 zoom because its optical zoom gives you a creative tool to further diversify your drone toolkit than another really good one inch sensor. Now, when we first announced these new drones, a lot of people questioned whether they should get the Phantom 4 Pro or the Mavic 2 Pro and what were the differences between the two? Well, worry not, Randy is also working on a head-to-head comparison of the two, so look out for that on the site in the near future. And next up is Ask No Film School. Emil F. Scanning asks, do you work every day? End quote. No, there's more. And to elaborate, (laughs) he says that he works part-time about 24 hours, not in the film industry, and then spends another 36 hours with film. So this means he works every day, and three times a week he works 11 hours. He loves it, but basically isn't sure it's sustainable and is thinking about taking one day off. And he wanted to know what other folks in the community do. I'm going to grab this one. I'm so glad you asked this question, Emil, because it's something I've been thinking about a lot these past couple weeks as I'm trying to balance my new job, the podcast, and wrapping up for a new phase of production on my feature doc, as well as, you know, just life stuff. So I'm not going to lie. It is hard. And some people are going to tell you that you should spend every possible waking moment on your work. And in fact, someone did say that pretty adamantly on the message board uh, in response to your question. And I respect that approach, but it's not how I would do it. I think that there is no more apt use of the expression, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon, than making a film. And no one is going to push it forward harder than you. So you absolutely must take care of yourself. Marathon runners get enough sleep and they take rest days for a reason. It lets them heal so they can make it for the long haul. Also, success in film requires relationships, not just with the people that are going to work on your crew, but with people who are going to support you personally when the going inevitably gets tough. And nurturing these relationships also takes time. True, you can't accept every social invite when you're prioritizing your work, but if you ignore your friends and family entirely, you're harming your career in the long run too. I recently did a podcast interview with the director, Deborah Granick, who did Winter's Bone and two of her producers. One of the producers said that independent films may not have as much money, but they usually have the luxury of time. So take some of that time, whether it's one day a week or various multi-hour chunks. Make sure you're exercising, unplugging from tech for a little while if possible, getting some fresh air and spending time with the people you love. And by the way, let's hold each other accountable. I am going to be trying hard to follow my own advice. Thanks for the question, Emil, and good luck. Liz, if we find out that you were speaking to your family during this week, <laughs> we will be very upset. No, that's the opposite. Oh, oh no, I'm, I'm sorry. Saying. You should be speaking to your family, yes. especially during the holidays. Yeah, exactly. Okay, I take it back. <laughs> now for some movie openings. Premiering on Netflix this Friday is Reversing Row, which is a brand new, very timely documentary. 45 years after it revolutionized abortion law in America, the landmark 1973 U.S. Supreme Court case, Roe v. Wade, is once again at a crossroads. In their timely new documentary, Reversing Roe, filmmakers Ricky Stern and Annie Sundberg 
from The Devil Came on Horseback and Marathon, The Patriot's Day Bombing, present a deeply illuminating look at the state of abortion and women's rights in America. The film offers candid and riveting interviews with key figures from both sides of the divide, among them doctors Colleen McNichols and Curtis Boyd, feminist icon Gloria Steinem, Operation Rescue President Troy Newman, and National Right to Life President Carol Tobias. That will be on Netflix this Friday. So reversing row, I actually didn't realize this was coming out so soon. It's also produced by this really interesting woman, Kelly Goff, who I met back when I was doing the election coverage in 2008. And she was a political commentator at that time. And she wrote this cool book called Party Crashing about like how the hip hop generation influenced the uh, Obama election. And she's gone on to become a screenwriter on Black Lightning. And now she's producing this doc. So I I have high hopes for this one. Shout out to Kelly. And coming to broadcast and streaming on September 16th is the docuseries Warriors of Liberty City. This was produced by the basketball star LeBron James and created by director Evan Rosenfield, who also directed most of the episodes. One of the episodes was directed by a no film school friend, Andrew Kahn, who we interviewed about his film Night School that we'll link to in the podcast post. Um, But uh, it's interesting because it is a, it's a TV series, but it premiered at South by Southwest 2018. And um, wow. so it's got kind of a like a cinematic vibe to it. Basically, it's a it's a doc about um, it explores Liberty City, hence the name. And it's a, that's a crime ridden neighborhood in Miami, which, by the way, is where Barry Jenkins is from. Um, it just happens to produce an extraordinary number of NFL players, including Devonta Freeman, Antonio Brown, Duke Johnson, Teddy Bridgewater. And so this series follows a season with their youth football program um, that was founded by hip-hop pioneer Luther Campbell, who they call Uncle Luke. Oh. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so it's it's kind of exploring, like, that youth football program and, and what it is that's so special, like, about it that, you know, produces all these these stars, basically. Oh. So, yeah, it should be pretty interesting. I'd like to see it. Yeah, LeBron played in Miami for four years, uh, not a couple of years back now, so that should be cool. And opening in theaters is Hale County This Morning, This Evening, Opening this Friday and being distributed by Cinema Guild, this is the debut documentary feature from photographer Ramel Ross, and it premiered at the 2018 Sundance Film Festival, where it was awarded a special jury award. A visually expressive act of experimental nonfiction, the film takes a specific section of the Alabama Black Belt to observe, redefine, and empower the cinematic image of African Americans on screen. And while the documentary often follows two young men throughout the five-year shoot, to call the film just a slice of life portrait would prove reductive. Uh, I spoke with Ramel Ross ahead of Sundance in very early January, and you can read the interview in this podcast post titled Hale County This Morning This Evening, Ramel Ross on Redefining the Black Body. Ooh, I really want to see this one, especially since reading your interview. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, also opening on Friday. Now, every other thing we've mentioned today, take it with a grain of salt because this is the news of the day. Also opening in theaters on Friday is this film called Mandy, which you may or may not, but probably did hear about on this podcast over the past few months. Our own John Fusco is a pretty big fan of this one. I cannot believe John is not here to announce the theatrical release of Mandy. He was too excited. That's why he took off. (laughs) (laughs) He said I couldn't control myself. John actually saw the film at Sundance, describing it as, there has never been a more midnight, midnight movie than Mandy. I think I came to this realization somewhere around 2 a.m., between watching a devout cult member forcibly drop a special batch of LSD in her kidnapped victim's eye and Nicolas Cage engage in a chainsaw duel against a man with a larger, more powerful chainsaw. Oh, wow. Wow. 
So that's where he was that night at Sundance at 2 a.m. <laughs> the plot uh, defies description, so I'm not going to even bother. I mean, if that doesn't get you going, uh, watch the trailer. It looks really batshit insane, and it's picking up a lot of followers, not the least Nick Cage and Andrea Risenborough, devoutees. And John actually spoke with director Panos Cosmatos at the 2018 Sundance Film Festival, where the film premiered in an article titled Panos Cosmatos on the Origins of Mandy and Why Nicolas Cage is a Magical Creature. Wow. Which you should definitely check out because that's something I've been wondering about for a long time. Why? Why? Why is he a magical creature or why I've been wondering? (laughs) Uh. Um, And for grant deadlines this week, with a deadline of September 17th, is Film Independence Project Involve, which is brought to you by the L.A.-based Film Independent. Every year, 30 emerging filmmakers from diverse backgrounds are given the opportunity to hone skills, form creative partnerships, and create short films, plus gain industry access needed to succeed as working artists. So it's a really robust program that pairs participants with mentors at the top of their respective fields, provides hands-on filmmaking experience from pre-production through premiere, and much more. If you are passionate and focused with an original voice and commitment to collaboration, which many of you are, they encourage you to apply. Cool. And now for some festival deadlines. With an early bird deadline of September 30th is the Nashville Film Festival, which runs... It's a very, very early bird deadline because this is for the festival that runs October 3rd through the 12th next year, 2019. So get it in by September 30th and you'll have to wait a year if your film gets in. But hey, early, early bird. It's like still in the ache. Um, (laughs) Hosted in Music City, USA, Nash Film attracts enthusiastic film lovers from all across the country and has been praised by filmgoers and filmmakers alike for its unique combination of big city festival atmosphere and laid-back southern hospitality. Nashville Film Festival offers $85,000 in cash and in-kind sponsor prizes to filmmakers and screenwriters, with winners selected by industry power players, including studio representatives, producers, and fellow filmmakers. The winning short films in the narrative, animated, and documentary short film competitions are eligible for Academy Award consideration without the standard theatrical run, provided the film otherwise complies with the Academy rules. And with a regular deadline of September 27th is the Atlanta Film Festival. I was feeling very Southern this week for these festivals. Uh, The Atlanta Film Festival runs from April 4th through the April 14th in Atlanta, Georgia. And now approaching its 43rd year, the Atlanta Film Festival, which they have as ATLIF, A-T-L-F-F, is the Southeast's preeminent celebration of cinema and the flagship production of the Atlanta Film Society. One of the largest and longest-running festivals in the country, Atlanta Film Festival showcases both emerging and established artists' works. Cash prizes ranging from $500 to $1,000 will accompany the Best Narrative Feature, Best Documentary Feature, Best Narrative Short, Best Documentary Short, Best Animated Short, and Georgia Film Award distinctions. You know what? I'm glad that you focused on the South this week, even though it's a slightly different region. We've been hearing a lot on the news here in the U.S. about the hurricane that's headed toward South Carolina region, North Carolina, South Carolina. And so we want to wish all of our listeners out there, good luck. Yeah. Barrel down. And Sh- Sh- Sean, our, our, our that's Sh- right, you know? our our yeah. um, director of brand partnerships, uh, Sean Billsboro, lives in North Carolina. So uh, yeah, we're just wishing you you all the best um, down there. Stay safe. Definitely. 
And now for whoa, 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 whoa. weekly words of wisdom. Wow. <laughs> I've been working on it. All right, it. good, how, good. How I'll, go? I'll do the shout out song, and I like your weekly words of wisdom okay. song. Let's <laughs> see if I can top it later on. I'll have to do it on the spot. But um, So last week, the Toronto International Film Festival is going on, of course. And last week, I spoke with directors Adam Stein and Zach Lepofsky about their new feature, which is called Freaks, which is no relation to the film from the 1930s. Uh, It's a film that debuted in the Discovery section of TIFF last weekend, and the film just sold to WellGo USA for a reported $2 million, and so I'm currently requesting a follow-up interview to demand a cut of those profits, because the interview was so good, I'm sure. Uh, The directing duo will next direct a live-action version of the pre-teen Disney hit Kim Possible, if you remember that animated series from the early 2000s, mid-2000s, That'll be a live-action movie that they're going to direct next. So look out for that sometime next year or in 2020. So I had asked Adam and Zach about their successful professional partnership. They actually met as contestants competing against each other on Steven Spielberg's TV series On the Lot, which was maybe about a decade ago. And I also asked why it's beneficial to have two voices at the head of production. Adam Stein told me, quote, I'd say there are challenges to it and there are beautiful rewards as well. I think Zach and I have really done a lot of work between us to figure out how to balance those responsibilities and listen to each other, because we think the biggest reward comes from having someone to keep you honest and keep the project as good as it can be. When there's a problem with a script or a shot or an edit and you're only one person, you can sometimes convince yourself that something's working, even when it isn't. Like, oh, I just wrote that scene. It's pretty good, I think. Yeah, that's good enough. It's great to have that second person who is candid and honest, and if you're the first person who felt that scene was pretty good, to be able to lose your ego so you can really listen and say, you know what, if he's thinking that this isn't working, well, I'd better listen. Together, that has really led to a final product that we think is much better than what we could have done ourselves. We really honed in on the gauntlet of the two of us looking at each thing with very careful eyes. Um, and so it's interesting. They go on in the interview to talk about how they were frustrated. They were working in like a lot of post-production work and wanted to make features, but were frustrated not getting those opportunities. So they took a long walk. It sounds actually very uh, stereotypically romantic, I guess, but they took a long walk and came up with this idea for Freaks, which they wrote over, I believe, three days. And obviously there was many drafts after that. But they made it something, and now it's turned to a feature. They've got this Disney deal. They just sold this one last weekend, and their partnership is going to continue. And it seems like even speaking to them that they do have a strong uh, friendship but also trust in that professional relationship, which it is true. You're not always going to benefit by having so many voices in the the kitchen, if you will, but having one that you can trust that's also your co-director seems like a valid partnership to have, and it's worked out well for them so far. Well, I'm glad to have a trusting partnership with you, Eric. Oh, thank you very much. Cool. I wish we could sell something for $2 million. Let's, let's work on that. Okay. Let's take a walk, and we'll come back with an idea. <laughs> and and now it's time for this week's shout-out. I'm starting to do the E.T. song. Oh, mm-hmm. that sounded kind of like Star Wars. Oh, Star Wars. Shout-outs. That's kind of John Williamsy, either way. Yes. So shout outs this week, Liz. Thanks, Eric. That was like a really that? nice song. Thank you. Yeah. The high notes always get to me. I think next year's EGOT winner might just be you. Oh, God. I, I want the Tony. The rest, you can have. <laughs> I'll take them. You can have the ego. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I want to give a shout out to my friend and fellow film fatal, LA-based director Jessica Sanders, who came up as a doc filmmaker and whose parents are both award-winning doc filmmakers. 
But she made a narrative short called End of the Line as part of Refinery-29's Shatterbox Anthology. The short premiered at Sundance this year, and it happens to star Brett Gelman, who's been on our interview podcast twice. Uh, The film had its broadcast premiere last week on TNT, and you can watch it online now at TNTdrama.com. Yeah, and I'd also like to point out, um, earlier this week, we were granted free passes for uh, IFP Week. My former employer is uh, coming up starting this Saturday, and it's it's celebrating its 40th anniversary. IFP is the uh, largest and oldest nonprofit for filmmaker advocacy group in the United States. And IFP Week is a series of events, one of which is public conversations and talks. And we had given away a few passes this past week. They're unfortunately now all gone, but you can still use code, I believe, no film school and receive 20% off passes if you would still like to attend. Uh, this Sunday is featuring talks with Boots Riley. It's going to be at Brick, uh, which is in downtown Brooklyn, where we record the podcast. And Boots Riley will be there. Uh, some of the directing team from Queen Sugar. Uh, Ryan, Ryan Koo will be there as well in the morning with IFP alumni speaking about their careers. Uh, some documentary producers, uh, legendary producers James Seamus, Roger Ross Williams will be there. A whole bunch of people this Sunday at Brick. So if you still want to attend, we're out of the free passes, but you can save 20% off by using No Film School. And I will be there for some of it as well, if anyone else like to come. Uh, I'll probably be wearing some Nick's orange and blue attire, so just spot me there if you'd like. Um, and it's, it should be a fun event, so stop by. It's always a great event, and this year's lineup looks particularly good. How does it feel for you to sort of be on the other side of it and just show up as, like, press? Well, it feels nice in the sense that this was always such a hectic week just because I, I probably wouldn't leave the office till about midnight these days. So it is nice to uh, be getting G-chats of the stress and, and not being in it myself. Uh, I will say, you know, shout out to my comrades who are there and, and making it be as great as it can be. Uh, but it feels a little bit more relaxed, you know? I, I've never had such a nice Labor Day before. Oh, good. You know? So, yeah. Well, I hope you enjoy it. Thank you. And next Monday, we will have, of course, our regular interview podcast. Now, we don't know exactly who the guest is going to be, but we're pretty sure that it's going to be one of John's amazing interviews out of TIFF, which he outlined for you a couple weeks ago. He's got a very hot lineup of directors and below-the-line folks from some of the most popular films at the festival and most anticipated films of the fall. So I, for one, am very excited to see uh, who next week's guest is. Yeah, I'm trying to guess just based on his... Uh, if you follow him on Twitter, he's been tweeting out some reviews. So I'm trying to keep up with what he's seen so far and what he's still going to see. So I think he really liked Widows a lot, which I really want to see, uh, and a couple of others. I know he was trying to see The Predator, but I don't know if he oh, did. right. And it's coming out this weekend anyway. So. And from Widows, he interviewed the DP, right? Uh, DP or the editor, I okay. feel like. Okay, one, yeah. one of the so, below-the-line folks. Well, it's, it's, yeah, super exciting. And in the meantime, if you want to make sure to get that interview podcast, subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. It's the No Film School podcast. And, of course, if you subscribe on iTunes, uh, please leave us a nice rating. It it means a lot to us and helps other folks find the podcast um, and, you know, just helps keep us going emotionally, spiritually. And and hypothetically. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> and of course, stay in touch. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. I'm at Eric Lures. Uh, John is Jim, Jim underscore Jim, John Jim, underscore uh, Jim. Jim. Yeah, it's kind of weird Jim, when he's I not know. here to say it. I guess I'll we'll, be John. Okay. okay. I'm Jim underscore John. Jim. Um, and we're all at No Film School. See you next week. Bye.